Hello, hello. Just a friendly reminder to sign up for our Discord channel at MajorDomoMedia.com. There's a link that will direct you to our Discord community. If you're not familiar with Discord, it's a great way to engage with other individuals that have similar interest or not similar interest. And it's a great way to debate things and to sort of hash things out and to get a better understanding of a variety of viewpoints. It's a great companion piece to this podcast, to Recipe Club, to all the TV we've done. It has a ton of content about what to eat, what cities to go to, music. We're even going to start a book club. We have moderators that are organizing the wild, wild west that is MajorDomaMedia.com. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you there. Uh, you'll, you'll see all of us there on a regular basis. So thank you to everyone that participates there have to give our weekly plug to Momofuku. You can visit us at shop.momofuku.com for all of our pantry items. We've created a lab about 12 years ago for products for our restaurants, for the things that we cook in, uh, cook with that are now available for your home pantry. We have salts, a variety of uh, things like savory, tingly, spicy. Spicy is my salt of choice for grilling. I put it on all proteins before it hits the grill. Uh, We have Soy sauce, tamari, vinegar, three different kinds of chili crunch, and especially our noodles that we've worked very hard to develop air dried for toothsomeness and texture and flavor, not deep fried, which has its own place in the world, but not just for calories, but it's a specific way we like our fans to enjoy our food. So uh, we cook that quite a bit. Also available nationwide at places like Target and Whole Foods. Lastly, uh, a couple months ago, we uh, had Lucas Mann, the managing partner founder of Acre Venture. It is a venture capital firm that specializes in food investments and helping companies in that sector grow. I was on, uh, I, Chris and I were interviewing him, and it's where I announced that I was joining the team. So this is a open call for anybody that is starting a food company that has already started a company or knows somebody that is doing this and has a great idea, is looking to grow, looking for help to grow, send me an email at dave at acre.vc. That's dave at acre.vc. Uh, we'll love to, to see if we can help you out. Love to just learn more about what you're building because uh, this, is, this is the fun stuff. I mean, this is a new way of me engaging with the food world and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So that's it. That's all I got going on. Momofuku, Major Domo, and now Acre. Enough of my plugging. We'll get on to the show. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Hey, 
Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. Chris is on his birthday sabbatical. Noel is busy doing real Major Doma work, and I have to sit here talking to myself. So I'm, I, I thought about what I wanted to talk about, something that might be useful. And ironically enough, it is sort of a, uh, the antithesis of the very last podcast where we're talking about um, photos of food. I'm going to give you my descriptions or what I just random, I not random, I quickly wrote out my top 50. I don't even know if we're going to get it, get to 50. Favorite dishes. I just recalled. I, I sat for like 30 minutes trying to write out the things that came to mind. And really it's sort of no descending order, but maybe it is in order because if it comes to mind first, maybe that's my order of, of, um, of preference. Um, and it's sort of like when, uh, uh, John Cusack in high fidelity organized his record collection by audiobiographical <laughs> moments rather than by alphabetical. Um, so I, I literally sat down and these are things that came to mind and it's in no order, but maybe it is order because it's what I, I, I wrote as it came to my, my thought process. And I have actually at 52 and I could have gone more, but I, I had to take care of my son. I'm going to write down 51 and 52 are sort of tied. They're tied because they're both things that my grandfather uh, fed me. The only thing he ever cooked were roasted rice cakes. He would take dok, like fresh rolled out rice cakes. Korean rice cakes, glutinous rice, or, or known as mochi in Japanese. And because he, he really loved mochi, uh, he would just put a little oil in a pan and grill them, uh, pan roast them, and then serve it with a little soy sauce and honey. And I grew up eating that. And that ultimately turned into a dish that we served at Momofuku called the roasted rice cakes. Um, and another thing that I remember was getting a, 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 uh, all kinds of sushi, but particularly we would get charashi. That was my thing I would get with him when I was younger. We'd get on the bus and we'd go to McLean, Virginia, and we'd go to Tachibana, which I still think is in existence. And he loved Japanese food way more than he loved Korean food. He tolerated Korean food, but he spent most of his time in Japan. And I think one of the reasons why my love of Japanese food is so prevalent is because of him. Even my wife says today that anytime I cook Japanese food, it's way better than anything else that I make for her or her friends or her family, anybody. So I, I just feel like I have more of a memory and, and nostalgia and, and food bank memory of Japanese food. And I would say the, 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 the mini Chirashi bowl that I would get with my grandfather, you know, that, that would be tied at 52 to 51. And again, I did this reverse order, but... You know, I'm going to go backwards. This is a little bit like John Cusack in High Fidelity in terms of autobiographical organization instead of alphabetical. Um, Golden Horseshoe Tournament. I won a Virginia State Championship at the Golden Horseshoe, but we're staying at Kingsmill, which is a very good uh, hotel, resort, country club in Williamsburg, Virginia. And as a first time I had wine, and it's the first time I ever had venison. And, and I was with my two brothers and my dad and we we're having a, a, a victory meal. And I got drunk off a glass of wine and I was all of what, 10 years old, nine years old. And I remember eating venison. I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that people ate deer. It just still is probably my most vivid food memory 
after all of these years is sitting at a candlelight dinner in like a renter jacket because they gave you a renter jacket because I only had like, you know, a collared shirt and eating venison. And I, I remember that distinctly because it was like rare. I never ate such a thing. You know, these are the memories that I feel like people all have in some degree. I remember distinctly thinking like, why is this meat cooked so raw? It like looks raw. And why am I giggling my ass off? And that meal, that, that meal, but particularly that dish is what I remember. And I may not remember conversations, but I can remember that meal. I can remember the laughs. I can remember the sounds. I can remember what things look like, but I can't remember faces and I can't remember ex- like certain moments, but other things I can remember in, in vivid detail. I also remember uh, 49 is not a, 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 it's clearly a beloved institution in, in South Florida is Joe stone crab house. The first time I had hash browns there, it wasn't even the stone crab. I was sort of let down by the stone crabs because I think it's a pain in the ass to get the crab out because the stone crabs themselves get a lot of the meat stuck. It can be stringy. And I was shocked that it was served cold. I remember distinctly being like, well, I've never had cold crab before. That's sort of a letdown. I grew up eating Maryland blue crab. So I thought it should be fucking hot. But when I got, the hash browns, I was like, oh, this is one of the best things I've ever had to eat. That was also the trip where I had my first glass of fresh squeezed orange juice. And it was also a trip that I remember distinctly that I wore golf cleats, golf shoes with iron spikes into the restaurant. And I was like, I'm going to ruin the floor. These are all the thoughts that I remember now because I had hash browns. Uh, 48 uh, just because I saw it on, on social media that Spoon by H in LA is is somehow back in some form, her her kalbi uh, tang her 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 um, her soup I don't even know what to call it but it it is it is a a uh, it's perfection it's like a mixture of Japanese tonkatsu uh, Korean soups and stews it's her own thing and and um, that is. That's just one of the best things I've ever had to eat. I think she's a fucking genius. 47 was, uh, I was uh, in Chicago. We went to Chicago in the early aughts uh, with Damon Wise. We left New York. We went to go eat at Alinea and we had the first, one of the first iconic dishes that you would read about online in food media, in chat forms, in eGullet. And it was a dish, if you had been following Grant Ockett's career, who used to be the one of the the, the exact sues for Thomas Keller at the French Laundry and moved to Chicago, teamed up with Nick Kokonis. The rest is history. He would describe this thing, the black truffle explosion. And I like, I, I'm such a hater on things. I was like, whatever. It's like a soup dumpling. How could it be that good? Or it's like, whatever. It's, it's black truffle jelly. That's maybe I, I was dismissive of it because I didn't come up with it. Or I just came in thinking that it can't be that good. It can't, be as good as people say it is. And sure enough, I had a wonderful meal. I remember the king crab with this mango jelly, all these other beautiful things. Alinea was one of, it still is one of the best restaurants in the world, but that was the dish that I remember that he took from Trio when he was a chef there that many great chefs were, 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 were at, but he, he it was one of these dishes that he first created and made sure that I think he can still get Alinea. And I tasted it and I was like, fuck, that's a perfect bite. That's a perfect bite of food. It really was... And I remember that because it's very few times that you get to eat something that is as good or better than the the reputation that it has. 46, I am going with uh, Singapore, my first time in Singapore going to Jumbos, and there's a few other. um, There's No Sign, 
um, restaurant, no sign boathouse. I can't remember the name, but there's also jumbos. I'm going to lump those two together because I really couldn't tell the difference. Um, it's the first time that I had crab outside of the old bay, uh, steamed old bay stuff. It was white pepper crab. I had black pepper crab. I had chili crab and I had curry crab and dipping your fried bow into that. And all the while eating really everything was good, but that crab is as good as people say it is. It's one of my favorite things to eat, but it's particularly good there because I still don't understand. And in most of Asia, you're eating the messiest foods with no napkins. They give you one like small napkin that you might get at like a, like a takeaway diner. Um, it's like a single ply napkin. I don't understand how the fuck you're supposed to eat the messiest food in the world and wipe your hands. And I do know why, because most people bring their own napkins. But if you're a tourist, you're not doing that shit. I still don't understand that. But I remember thinking to myself, this is so fucking good. And, you know, it was that process. I think the first clearly is the chili crab. Then it was, oh, there's white pepper crab. There's black pepper crab. But that chili crab just knocked me out of my ass because I never tasted anything like that before with the egg white mixed in and there's ketchup manis, uh, which isn't ketchup, but some people do. And the history of it was basically like the creation of uh, Cesar Ritz and the Caesar salad was basically some chefs just put a bunch of shit together in there. Um, and it's good. Any kind of chili crab is good so much so that I still think some of the best chili crab right now that I can get is in Vegas. And we try to put it on the menu in a variety of ways, but it's just one of those things that is hard to recreate outside of that area. Um, but Vegas has some pretty good chili crab, although I haven't found it really anywhere else in America. And we have tried to do it. Although Max Ng of Momofuku makes a fucking outrageously good chili crab himself. He's from Singapore. Um, 45. This is going to be a dish that probably nobody's listening will ever taste or even know. And it's a smoked potato foie gras terrine that I would have to make for my executive chef at Cafe Balloud named Bertrand Chamel. And I believe he has a restaurant now in, in Northern Virginia in the Vienna area. Um, he was an extremely gifted chef and extremely precise. And this fucking terrine he would have us make was such a pain in the ass. It was smoked foie with these perfectly confit potatoes and the way you would layer it together. The fact it was so simple, but so difficult to construct. It was very similar to uh, a Marco Piero white um, leek terrine that was basically just pressed together. I believe it's lobster and leek. Um, the compression is what made it so beautiful and so simple and so clean. But that flavor to me was what I remembered. It was what I remember was the pain in the ass in fucking making it. But I also remember being able to taste the, the ends of these. I've never tasted it in a dining room. It was just surely from a, someone that served it, being able to taste the ends of it when you're slicing it. I was like, that is just outrageously good. And, and uh, it was beautiful. And I remember that 44, 44th best thing that I can recall eating was my first time I had clam pizza at Sally's in New Haven. And I know Nathan Miravold, and I can't believe we didn't have Nathan Miravold on this podcast in general for his Modernist Cuisine cookbook, which we should, with all our fucking pizza talk. Note to self, like, we got to get fucking <laughs> Nathan on this podcast. I don't know what the fuck we were doing. And he is not a, uh, uh, he is a, the, the, he's not, yeah, I'll say he's a fucking hater of New Haven pizza. And I don't understand that. I love New Haven pizza. I love 
Sally's. I love all of them, even modern a pizza. Like they're, they're, they're all really good. But the first time I had Sally's and uh, the clam pizza with bacon, I never had pizza with clams on it. I never just with parsley. I was like, that just isn't even a thing. And um, it was delicious. It's just not something you would ever think about it. If you grew up in Northern Virginia and you're not going to college in Connecticut, it's like, who the fuck is putting clams on pizza? It just doesn't fucking happen. So, yeah, it's one of those things you're going to remember. And now you see it in so many pizzerias around the country. It's a delicious thing. I'm sure purists would be like, get that fucking out of my face. But it's one of my favorite pies for sure because of the purity of it. it you know, a little parsley, maybe some bacon and those clams it, with a charred crust. Huge, huge fan. 43, my first trip to New York City, my dad was a big fan of uh, pastrami sandwiches and corned beef sandwiches. And, uh, I remember that because we would go to Carnegie deli that had an expansion in, 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 um, in Virginia at the Sheraton hotel in off route seven. And I thought, wow, my dad were like, this is New York. It was the only thing he ever loved about New York was, were these huge fucking deli Jewish deli sandwiches. Cause he hated New York for the most part, but it was the one thing he loved. And I grew up thinking this is, this is, um, this has got to be the epitome of a Jewish deli sandwich and matzo ball soup until I went to second Avenue deli. But later when I remember going on a trip to long Island to visit my cousins, we stopped by Katz's and my dad was like, this is, this is the, this is, this is where it begins. This is it. You know, he would eat any other pastrami sandwich just to get some kind of faint whiff of the real thing. And I remember that, and I remember later, I was young. I was pre when Harry met Sally. And I later remember watching Harry met Sally where they have the fake orgasm scene. And we like, I was there with that. That was like my claim to fame to anybody that was around me at the time. Um, 42. And I'm never going to remember this. I try to look it up. It's going to be no help to anybody. But we should talk to Mehmet and, and, uh, and all my friends in Istanbul. I try to look it up. It was the Doner kebab spot that is outside Istanbul a little bit. And they serve like 2,800 people a day, all wood-fired doner kebab spots. I'll try to look it up and we'll put it online or in Discord. Um, the bread is made all the minute. All the, all, the, all the bread that is cooked there is made fresh. You sit down and they have all of these nice like salads and tomato salads and things like that. But you see these giant, I mean, honestly, we're talking about 1,000 pounds of, of, of beef being roasted and cut that was such an experience and it was the best doner i've ever had the best shawarma i've ever had 41 when we were filming um ugly delicious you know still it's a tv show but like i never had a taco like mariscos jaliscos in my life i never had that i'm still unfamiliar with a lot of the 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 the, the, the flavors of mexico and you know, because it's a TV show, we had to pit like, I don't love tacos. That's not true. I've always loved tacos. I just, I'm not that familiar, but I've never had anything like that. And when I tasted that on camera, it was legitimately mind blowing because I felt like, I know I'm not trying to compare everything to Asia or Chinese or anything Asian in origin, but it tasted like dim sum to me. It really tasted like dim sum. And still to this day, when I have a Marisco Chilisco's taco with a, with a shrimp taco, um, it tastes like dim sum. It's so good. I love it. I love it. Uh, 
40 was my first barbecue in Texas in Austin. And it wasn't at um, Franklin's. Uh, I would say Franklin's is clearly where I go still to this day. I'm just, this is just my autobiographical best of list. It was when La Barbecue was still a, a food truck. And I ne- that was my first slice of brisket uh, cooked that way. And to this day, I still think it was one of the best bites I've ever had. I, I love Franklin's and I've had wonderful meals there and I love it. I'm just simply saying like, it could clearly have been Franklin's. It just so happened. My very first bite of brisket was at La Barbecue and it happened to be fucking delicious. 39 is, is uh, something that anyone can really try to this day. Any egg salad sandwich from Lawson's, specifically Lawson's in Japan, the convenient mart. 38, and, and you might see a trend here where I'm stuck doing all Japanese things or wherever I was, because I remember my, my first real uh, tonkatsu experience. I've had tonkatsu before. My mom would make it, but I, it was never with an heirloom pig. It was never with a chef where you know you had certain cuts available to you for the day. And it was never where that was the only thing you were going to order. It was specifically a tonkatsu restaurant. Have I had different tonkatsu elsewhere in Japan? Yes, but that was my first one, and it was so memorable. And I remember the fat cap on it, and the and the quality of pig that was used to 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 make that breaded cutlet. It was sublime. It was delicious. Thirty seven. And honestly, if I was really ranking this in order, I'd probably put this in a much higher ranking, like top ten. And maybe we should revisit this later as I rejigger all of this. The Welsh Rarebit, St. John's, Heston, I'm not Heston. Oh my God, totally different person. Um, totally different chef. Fergus Henderson's and, and, and Trevor Gulliver's uh, great, fantastic, genre-defining restaurant, St. John's. Um, their Welsh Rarebit is, is something that I crave. And it's actually something I crave quite a bit. Um, and to be taught by... Fergus, how to actually eat it properly by making cross hatches, deep cross hatches in the bread with your knife and then dousing it so liberally with Worcestershire sauce that you would think it was a mistake is, is actually the best way to eat it. And if you don't know what a Welsh rare bit is, you should look it up. The reason why it's so memorable to me is I remember in the Encyclopedia Britannica, there was a picture of Welsh rare bit and I would ask my sister is this rabbit? I didn't understand how it could be rare, rare bit. And I don't understand why it's called rare bit, but I remember now having it for my first time. That was extremely memorable. And the fact that it's arguably the greatest cheese sandwich in the world. It is. It really is. 36 is another ephemeral food moment that no one's going to have except for a select few people. Um, Many years ago, probably over a decade plus, I was down in Madisonville, Tennessee. I was thinking I was doing something with Sean Brock with Southern Foodway Alliance. And we, we met up with Alan. Every time I'd go to Tennessee or every time I'd go to see Blackberry Farms, I'd definitely make a, a pilgrimage to see the great Alan Benton of Benton Smoky Country Mountain Hams. And we went out with his wife in his truck to the backwoods of ramp country. This was peak ramp season. And he went to... It was like Valhalla for ramps. I've never seen so many fucking ramps in my life. It was insane. It was, um, it was just like a secret garden of ramps. 
And we we actually drove, I believe, without revealing too much, on the border of of North Carolina, um, coming back around because to the mountainside to Tennessee. It was a random. It was a weird. It was not weird. It was just a a long winded road, winding way of getting there. But when we did, he he set up a grill, set up a Bunsen like a gas burner. We picked ramps, um, and we just we just ate his delicious pork griddled with some pan roasted ramps by the, by the river. And it was just one of the best food memories I've ever had. And to have Alan and his gym, he looks like Jimmy Carter. He sounds like Jimmy Carter um, with my good friend, Sean, it was just a great memory, but to have that moment in that, in that setting, it was just a, a magical moment. And it is clearly one of the things I, I'll always remember is getting to pick ramps, cook them and eat them with uh, something that most people will never get outside of Tennessee, a lot of his loose loose country sausage, which is fucking outrageously delicious. And I, I'd probably say too, like I don't even know if I remember put it on the list, but it should be the the the. I think John Fleer's original recipe is still the recipe. The the chef John Fleer at Blackberry Farms, their their biscuits and and, and gravy is is made with Benton's country sausage and it's it is yeah i'd probably also say that probably is my top 10 things that i want to eat right now 35 is is uh the the recently closed uh moon palace and who knows what's going to happen with moon palace down the road but i was thinking what is something i i i crave the most and i think about quite a bit randomly i think about max's moon pies from scratch and it's like this hybrid version of a Japanese bean cake mixed with a Southern staple. And I hope to God that lives one day because Max Ng's moon pies or delicious. And that's saying something because the fucking sliders, you know, the, those were so fucking good. But what I really remember the most, what I want more than anything, oftentimes whenever I have a sweet tooth is Max's moon pie. Um, 34, this is, I can't remember, I can't even believe I remembered all this shit. And legitimately, this was like under 30 minutes. I wrote all this shit out at, 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 uh, Dookie Chase. Um, um, there you have these butter beans, these white beans, and, uh, it's fantastic. And as great as the fried chicken is there and as great as the red beans there and as great as the other sides, I was knocked on my ass by how great the white beans were, which are basically lima beans. And, um, I think that was not only underrated when I think about a bean dish, that's what I think. I don't think about some cassoulet. I don't even think about Popeye's red beans and rice. I think about that bean dish being fucking extremely memorable, perfectly seasoned and something that was better than everything else. And that was some rice. That was, that's all I need. And if I lived in New Orleans, I'd eat that shit all the time. Uh, 33 was my first Vodapav um, in Mumbai. Uh, didn't even know that was a thing. Um, I've tried to seek out similar Vodapavs. Uh, Vodapavs. I think that's the proper I'm, I'm pronunciation fucking it up. But um, so good. And again, it's street food. I don't remember the place, but I was with Aziz. I remember us both eating it. And Aziz has eaten so many places. He's uh, can be as food jaded as anyone I know. We took a bite of that and we both looked at each other like, what the fuck? Like that's not supposed to be that good. 
if you haven't had a potato fried potato ball sandwich with chutney, two different chutneys that it's like everything you want. It's got cooling herbaceousness. It's got the sweet chili heat. You got the crunch. You got all the spices that are in the potato ball. You got the bread. You have influence from the Portuguese. It's it's just so fucking good. I've had versions here. They've been fine, but never as good as what I had on the streets of Mumbai. Um, <clears throat> that is 33. 32 gets us to, um, and I believe I was here with Chris Ying, actually two different times. The second time I was with Chris, the first time not with Chris Ying, but the second time I remember taking Chris to the central market in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The city is built around the central market. So that's like the oldest part of town. And that's where you're going to see the Chinatowns and the Korea towns. And you're going to see pastels, like the fried dumplings with like Asian forests and stuff like that. And then as it grows out, it's more, much more newer and, and recent in, in this is my memory, but um, you can't discount the, the Italian influence uh, there and um, at the, at the, at the central market, right? Uh, they they serve these monster mortadella sandwiches and they do at other di- late night diner spots. And I can never remember the name of a diner uh, is a wholly different name in Portuguese. And I remember eating many of these mortadella sandwiches with Christian, but the first one I had, I just, number one, couldn't believe how high the stack of mortadella was. And I've never had, I, I don't think I really even ate mortadella. <clears throat> Uh, in my life. I remember cooking it. I remember making it with Marco Canora, but I never had it like this sliced thinly sliced warm. When we would make it, it was always served cold. This was hot mortadella on, 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 on like a Kaiser roll, like a New York style city's Kaiser roll. And that's what makes it so different is the pure size and sheer quantity, but also the thinness of it. So it is, is it's light. It's not really dense. And when I think about Sao Paulo, when people ask me about Sao Paulo, that's what I always tell them. They're always like, what the fuck are you talking about? I was like, get a mortadella sandwich. 31. Um, 31. I have Franklin's barbecue as, as a whole. Uh, my first meal there. Um, I guess it is ranked higher than, than the barbecue, but I just put it out there as an homage because, uh, it is one of my favorite places. It is one of those places is less a dish and more of a restaurant because everything's fucking good there. The drinks, the service, the whole thing. It's a special, special place. But I do think that it's the first time I had turkey where I was like, hmm, that's, 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 I have to take back every negative thing I've ever said about turkey. It's so fucking good. Um, everything at Franklin's is good. I love everything they do. 30 <clears throat> on the barbecue tip is the first time I had Rodney Scott's barbecue. Um, in, 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 I remember this is years ago. We were thinking about trying to go to the, there's a place that is only open to have, um, um, oysters, but we wound up getting Rodney's barbecue and he wasn't directly in Charleston and it was so fucking good, man. Again, he's a master of his craft and it is one of the hardest things to do well. And then later on getting it done at, um, we did hot luck together and I just remember him um, sitting by that those charcoals all day and getting to watch him and getting to pick his brain. And then later seeing him eat some kind of fast food in the hotel. Um, 
that's what I love about Rodney. He's like, he could have eaten anywhere in Houston. And what he really wanted was some fast food. And it was a quickie because he had to go back to tend the fire. But his, his, his food, his pig is really good. Also underrated by Rodney is his banana pie. Banana, banana cream, banana pudding. Excuse me. Fucking delicious. Also underrated by Rodney Scott, those goddamn chicken wings. Fucking delicious. 29 Brodard summer rolls in, in Orange County. Um, I remember going there for the first time. It's a, it's a funny enough location. It, it feels like you're walking through, uh, like the wild, wild West in an old town, but you're going through like a dilapidated strip mall. And then you go through and then you see this giant restaurant that's packed to the gills. And I'm not going to say it in the Vietnamese name, uh, cause I will butcher it, but their summer rolls. I had never had anything like that. They were so good. And that crispy cigar is what, again, I've had similar versions elsewhere, but that was so good. And the sauce, it was like some kind of crab sauce. Uh, Jordan, am I right? It has some kind of crab sauce that you dip the summer rolls in, right? I, th- I think so, yeah. Some kind of savory shellfishy thing like that, yeah. yeah. And when you taste it, you're like, that's not easy to make or whatever it is. You're like, is the sauce better than the summer roll? I don't know, but together it's a highly memorable experience and the whole menu there is delicious. On the Vietnamese tip, the 28, my father would take me, I remember being around, it was before high school, it was probably like seventh, eighth grade. We go to Falls Church because that's where, in Virginia, that's where a lot of great uh, Korean food and Vietnamese food is. But I didn't know. We'd only get uh, Korean food. My father somehow recently discovered Vietnamese food later in his life. And to this day, even my mom's, uh, what she would eat, before she passed was pho. It was probably the thing she ate the most later in life. And my dad uh, fell in love with pho to the point where he was there honestly five times a week. Um, and he took me there for the first time, pho 75 in Falls Church. And I think they've now grown to multiple locations. But that first one, I I just remember again, that taste being like, I've never had that flavor. What is that? Wound up being star anise. I never had beef balls that were chewy. I've never had raw meat. I've never had tendon. I never had all these things. I never had <clears throat> herbs, basil, lemon, beans. I never had anything like that. And that delicious, delicious broth. So pho became the one non-Korean, non-Chinese dish that probably we frequented the most in my family. And I, I, I to this day, uh, I will always remember being able to eat there with my dad, um, 27 is not the best soup dumpling in the world, <clears throat> but again, this is the first of the things that I remember that are favorites. I remember when my sister who was in school at the time, um, when I, when I, when I came back to New York, she took me to Joe Shanghai, um, which was on Pell street in Chinatown. And there's one in Midtown too. <clears throat> um, I never had Shanghainese food. I've had uh, uh, different kinds of Chinese food. I didn't even know what Shanghainese food was when I was 21, 22. And then to get a soup dumpling, I believe the New York Times wrote a story about soup dumplings, so it was all the rage. Um, and then going to Joe Shanghai on a weekend and seeing people eat this thing, this crab pork meat soup dumpling that you bite the hole in, and I got the whole sort of spiel of how to do it, what to eat, the protocol – that was just one of the best food memories I've ever had. Have I had other soup dumplings that are better? Yeah. 
Have I been to Shanghai? Have I? Yeah, it, it's not about that. But for me, I think about that moment of discovery of being able to taste something I've never had before. I've had dumplings before, but never filled with soup. It was such a memorable moment for me that I remember on my culinary project, my final project, uh, my first dish that I ever came up with um, in cooking school was a soup dumpling, but it was based on oxtail and it was, it was more Korean and I was going to put it in there and it, it, it wasn't very good at all. It was terrible, but those are the food memories that leave an imprint on you. And the funny thing is now I love Joe's. I still think it's delicious. I haven't been there in a while, but I'm sure if you go to a foodie today, they're like, Oh, I'm going to Joe's. They're like, Oh, it's like such, such an obvious answer. Fuck off. Like we need to get over these kinds of things. It's good. There's plenty of others and it's great. And I think it's been an institution and it's educated. I don't know how many fucking people to Shanghainese food, um, me included. So I, I, I have great gratitude towards uh, Joe Shanghai. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. 26 is the first time I ate at Ubuntu. Uh, I've eaten there two times. I've been there two times. No, I've only eaten there once. That that was the meal that knocked me out of my ass. And it was the first time I ever saw someone treating vegetables like meat. And he had this ox heart carrot. He, and listen, it, it, there, there's another dish of uh, uh, of uh, of petty pois peas that are freshly shucked with uh, um, white chocolate mint uh, broth, which is uh, again may not make sense. Is fucking otherworldly. That is amazing. But what I remember when I think about Ubuntu is not that dish that was very famous by Jeremy Fox was eating a carrot like a steak. They seem commonplace today when you see cauliflower steak and all this shit, but an ox heart carrot looks like a fucking baseball, looks gnarly. And to slow roast that and to baste that and, and, and have it serve like a cut of meat was very Pissardian, like a beat. But I had never seen that here in America. And the way it was done and the flavor, that was something that's memorable. So whenever I think about a dish that is like that, I always go back to Ubuntu. So it's a dish that I think about a lot. A lot of these dishes as we get to 25 are dishes I think about continuously 
Because the food memories, the references, the data points that I constantly use as benchmarks. 25 um, is the first time I had caviar fried chicken, a dish that, an idea that we took um, from Wiley and did our best to pay homage. I see it now everywhere. And I just want everyone to know you should pay credit to WD because nobody in the history of the fucking world. And I did this. I remember spending literally fucking hours trying to find anybody that paired chicken and caviar. It is in no cookbooks. Nobody, nobody ever fucking did it. We put it with our large format fried chicken. I remember asking Wiley if we were able to do that. He gave us permission, but he did a small appetizer of, of, of a fried chicken, like, like, like nuggets, cubes with caviar. And there was a other few garnishes on there. And it was that salinity, that sort of, that idea that you're eating fried chicken. It was as literally the same ingredients in different stages of its life that you would get in a caviar course with a blini. Everything was the same. If you think about it, the chicken and the egg. And I just love that. And I love the juxtaposition of the crunch, the salinity of the caviar, that whole thing, and the perverseness of it. I loved it. It was fucking art. It was beautiful, edible art. We took it. And I know that nobody else is doing it because nobody else is fucking doing it. And I'm just saying, like, it's weird now to see it fucking everywhere. I see it everywhere. And I just want everyone to know you should pay credit to Wiley Dufresne um, for sure. And that was something that altered my life is seeing that kind of combination. I see it. You'd be surprised at how many fucking restaurants do that. And if you ask them, they'll be like, I don't fucking know. I came up with it. You didn't come up with shit. Um, 24. Uh, it's not a dish. It was the first time I had a perfect cherry in Tokyo, in Japan. It was a box. I'm not obnoxious thing to buy. I think I spent over $300 on a box of perfect cherries. Because I've had great oranges and I've had tastes of perfect melon before. And it's again, one of those things where like, what, what, fuck you guys. There's no way. You know, it's a little bit like John Travolta in, in Pulp Fiction, like the $5 fucking milkshake, but this is like, you know, 60 X more expensive. I just was like incredulous. There's no fucking way. There's no fucking way. There's no way this box of cherries is like 330 bucks, whatever the fuck it was. I have a photo of it. And I open up the box and each stem of the fucking cherry is perfectly curled under. Each cherry is fucking perfect. It looks fake. And then you taste it. You taste one cherry and it was like an acid trip. It's like I, I, I licked a poisonous frog. Um, it was fucking crazy because in that moment, you're like, I know nothing. I literally was like, I don't know anything anymore. I'm so dumb. I'm going to shut the fuck up. When you taste something that is so obnoxiously expensive, and then you immediately tell yourself this was worth it, okay? That's how good it was. One fucking cherry. And I had like 60 of them, but I had one cherry. And I was like, this was worth it. I'm so glad I spent this money on this. That is the kind of food that I'm talking about because you can't believe humans created this. You can't believe it. You're like, how the fuck do we engineer something this good? And then you stay in Japan and you get to know how deep the culinary history is. You spend time. I remember uh, being at a farm with uh, Murata-san of Kikunoi. And he said, oh, this farmer, he's been doing this for 1,200. His family's been doing this for 1,200 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
it's mental when you think about how much fucking agricultural farming knowledge they have there. And I have to say, that's probably why certain things are so fucking good. It's like a cherry ate a cherry, ate a cherry, ate a cherry. It's like this genetic algorithm into the perfect cherry. It's a perfect fucking cherry. I, I, I have nothing. I don't know what else I can say about it. 23 uh, uh, was when uh, Chris Shepard of Houston took me to eat uh, a crawfish and noodle. Uh, something that we we featured heavily in Ugly Se- Ugly Delicious season two, the shrimp episode, and it wasn't even the crab. I mean, it wasn't the crawfish. As delicious as it was, that Viet Cajun flavor, which blew me away. What I remember most about crawfish noodle, what I think about the most, was their deep fried blue crab. I, I I've never had that before in my life, and it's something I've tried to emulate in a lot of different ways. But that was what. I mean, that's saying something because that crawfish is fucking unreal. It is worthy of flying there just to eat that Viet Cajun style food. But what I think about when I think about crawfish noodles, after I think about that, what I really, really want is his deep fried blue crab just on another level. It's not like salt and pepper. It's, it's the crawfish noodle recipe. 22, a, a dish that I talk about a lot. That is Park's gochujang jjigae. Um, I do think it's again, not that this is an order, but I, I I say that it's probably the best dish in Los Angeles. It really is. In my opinion, I can't think of any dish that it's more consistently delicious than this. The reason it's good is not just because I've never had gochujang until I went to parks is that I've taken a lot of people there to eat this dish without telling them really what it is. I tell them it's like a chili or it's like a pozole. I tell people it's like a pozole. You know, I've told people all kinds of things just to get them to try it. And maybe it's just me. And I I don't know if anyone else feels this strongly about it. But to me, I think it is unbelievable. It's got potatoes. It's got meat scraps in it, onions, this beautiful gochujang flavor. So it's fermented Korean chili paste. But really what makes it so good than anyone else is, again, people forget time and time again that arguably the best thing to get at a Korean barbecue place is not just the barbecue itself, but all the soups and stews, the tongs, the clear broth, and the jigas, the stews, because they have giant cauldrons of beef stock, beef soup being made. And when you're making it with beef scraps, it's a wholly different game. And that's why you can't recreate that. And that's why the naengmyeon there is so good. That's why certain things are so good. And I think the gochujang jjigae is unbelievable. Uh, 21, my favorite sushi spot in New York City. And I think it is underrated. And I think Nick and Jimmy and the whole team at Shuko is underrated, are underrated, because it is the most New York's, one of the quintessential New York City dining experiences to me is eating at Shuko. Um I love that restaurant. I love the the vibe. I love the New York City fuck you-ness of it all, you know, and and uh, that doesn't mean it's hard edge at all. It just has this swagger that you're not going to find elsewhere. And it's not just a regurgitation of a, you know, a, a sushi experience, a, a sushi experience where you're spending a lot of money to get something that a lot of people can get elsewhere. It's not just flown in from Japan. And I love that experience too. My favorite, whether people agree or not, is Shuko. I love it. I think some of the flavors are bold. I think it is extremely ballsy. 
but there's one dish that again is obscenely delicious and obscene. Um, and it's not there at Toro with Thai chili. And I would probably put that in there as well. Cause a lot of people you end with a tuna hand roll with a, a spicy tuna hand roll, right? Um, in a omakase, they do theirs with Thai bird chili. That's going to, that, that's a, that's, that's on the level of Corey Lee at Bennu starting at his meal off with a century quail egg. You know, it is ballsy, and I, I, I admire that, that decision. It's so good. It's so different. And that's what we need more of is, is a little bit of edginess, a little bit of risk-taking. <clears throat> One, something that maybe isn't so risky, and what I think about when I think about luxury is their club sandwich. I don't even know what it's called, but <clears throat> it's um, – you know, Nick used to work for Masa Takayama, and Masa has the, the 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 milk bread with the toro and the caviar. He's taken his version of it, and now it's a slice of rectangular milk bread with toro, with uni, and now caviar. And uh, <clears throat> it's so good, man. I know it's one of those things that you like hope isn't good. It's one of those things that you don't want, again, because it's so obnoxious in terms of the ingredients. But it looks sick. It's so good. And when my wife and I talk about New York City and all the things that we miss, that is inevitably the thing that comes up all the time is that dish itself. <clears throat> 20, 20 is the first time, I mean, Christina Tosi's written about this, but we're at the basement of, of, of uh, Co, and she was working on Co desserts. And because we didn't have any refrigeration, because we're out of electricity, because it was a very, very limited place to work in terms of how you could make certain foods and techniques. She came up with an idea um, that turned out to be cereal milk. And she makes cereal milk panna cotta. And it's in the milk bar, um, the Momofuku cookbook. And she's, you can taste that at your local Whole Foods right now. Uh, the cereal milk ice cream is delicious or any, if you're local to any milk bar. I remember that. Because not only did I always admire Christina Tosi for all the things that she was and still is, and her sort of ingenuity and sort of like work ethic that is unparalleled to just just get shit done and prove people wrong. She told, she said, "Come on down here." And I remember looking at this thing. I was like, "Avocado," and and like a, looks like a panna cotta. I was like, "And this chocolate thing," I'm like it's not working for me visually. <clears throat> and then you taste it all and you're like, Oh, I, I, you say to yourself, I'm so fucking dumb. What the fuck do I know? Sometimes you just got to taste shit and trust the process and realize you don't know anything. Why do I, why would I know <clears throat> how to make something perfectly in the, in the pastry world and the avocado on paper seemed weird to me because it's like, it's fatty. Why is that going to parallel with, a panna cotta, but sometimes fat and fat pair really well together and it accentuated the cereal milk flavor. But I just tasted the cereal milk itself. And I remember thinking, holy fucking shit. I, I mean, this is, it's like, I imagine being like, I don't know, some kind of producer, a non-murderous Phil Spector or something like this, where you're like, holy fucking shit. Or, you know, Barry Gordy or fucking, uh, God, I can't, my memory's failing as I get older. The legendary Beatles producer. I, I just couldn't believe what the fuck just happened. 
And I, <laughs> I did. And she says that we recall it a lot. You have to fucking put this in everything. You have to trademark this. You have to build everything around this flavor because it's the birth of like real modern art. It's, it's, it's a Duchampian type of fucking creation. We are like, oh my God, you've just taken something that is popular. That's the mainstay. You just picked it up in the bodega and you transferred it in with alchemy and French technique. You turn it into something else and it is a dish that everyone for the most part in America can resonate with. Everybody will have some memory. That is extraordinarily powerful. You taste this dish and you're able to conjure some memory of your childhood. Everyone has that ratatouille moment. There are very, very few dishes that have that ability. Hers is easily one of the best versions of that. And for me to taste that in the moment, to be the first person in the world to taste that moment, I will never forget that. That's an extremely memorable dish. 19 was when I was filming uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with Seth Rogen. We're in Vancouver, and you can see it for yourself. We went to Lee's Donuts. I was so fucking high, and I, <laughs> I still think about that. I, I mean, I think in a world of food memories. I really do. When I say I think about this all the time, I do. I, I am nostalgic about moments of food and flavors that I've had, and I think about when I've had like, like these, it's just a random thing. I'll think about like, shit, like that was like one of the best things I've ever had to taste. It's, it's a very concrete detailed memory for me. And as, as high as I was eating a hot jelly donut, I've never had before in my life. I've never had people have had jelly donuts. I think the only people that have had a hot jelly donuts are the fucking people that work in donut fact donut shops, because it's just not something you're ever going to have ever. And I have been before that. I've always made fun of jelly donuts. They're the worst fucking donut, the fucking worst. The only texture you really get is from the, 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 the crunchy sugar, but it's always like, it's just not good. I've never had a good jelly donut. I just, I don't, I didn't, I didn't believe in them. And here's the thing. I still don't believe in them. I think they are garbage for the most part, unless they're fucking made fresh. And I still haven't had a freshly made jelly donut. Like I have had at Lee's. It certainly helped to be in the condition that I was in, (laughs) but that reaction you see from us was as genuine as I've ever had because it was so fucking good. And it was a perfect food. You had the textural contrast from the sugar. You had the smell of oil and fat, which you need in food. You had the, the, the acidity of, of really great jam and the sweetness, different shades of sweetness, but it also had that cooling effect. And it was very similar to like a black truffle explosion type of kind of situation. But you also had the temperature contrast. And that is what made this one of the most memorable bites of food I've ever had. So good. 18, <clears throat> this is going to be, I, I don't know if it's a two or three mission star restaurant, but Steinreck in, in Austria. I had a course that I'll never forget because I'd never seen anything like that. And the execution was so flawless and it was so ballsy that it was in my hall of fame. It was a, a trout dish, I believe. I don't know. It was, I believe it was trout, a local trout. And, and they, um, they're cooking a candle in front of you. The candle is like being cooked or something like that. Um, 
I can't remember the mechanics of of it, but it was ingenious, right? In terms of the the the, the dish itself and and how it was cooked. But basically, they they take beeswax and they they put your fucking fish in there and they cook it in hot beeswax. Um, or no, let me back it up. I misunderstood that. They're melting the beeswax. The fish is already in it and they're melting it down. And as it cooks, you're able to eat this perfectly cooked. The croissant on it, the temp on it was perfect. And I just remember being like, certain things started to match up, like the honeycomb pattern, the candle. But what I remember again was usually these kinds of dishes fucking are total failures to me. What I remember again was I can't believe it worked and it actually tasted delicious, right? The, 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 the bee pollen, bee pollen actually accentuated the dish. Everything made sense. It was probably the most, there's a lot of dishes in the world that are good. That make sense. This made more sense than any dish I've ever had. And it was, it was unbelievably executed. I'm sure you can find it online. And, and, and if I were them, I would never take it off the bucket menu because it's just like, you see that dish? That is a lifetime work. You're lucky to have one of those dishes in your life. That was a fucking perfect dish. 17, uh, my, 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 my Sean Gray, uh, 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 who, who, who came up with cold fried chicken, the most difficult fried chicken recipe, I think, in the world. It is fried four times, I believe, four different batters. Korean fried chicken is delicious, but to serve it cold, uh, man, like this is the brilliance of Sean Gray and, and, and to serve it that way with a mild Tabasco, green Tabasco sauce. I won't reveal too much of the recipe, but when I first tasted it, I was like, Sean, you're, you're in the fucking zone. You're in the moment, man. You're in the moment where everything is making sense to you. And again, I know I put this in order, but clearly any of these things could be one. Any of these things could be two, right? I just wrote this out and I'm going in reverse order. And that, that, that moment of, oh my God, this is like modern art. You're taking something that is a cold fried chicken, which is, if you've eaten fried chicken, it's a thing, right? In and of itself, people like eating cold fried chicken. Then you're doing a play on Korean fried chicken, which is a play on cold fried chicken, which has a very complex batter and shell where you're trying to make it crack crack uh, crunchy and crackly even though it's been battered um and there's a variety of ways and it's not easy to make korean fried chicken it really is it's a fucking pain in the ass <laughs> and then to do your version of a cold fried chicken on a play on a play on a play it was it was just one of those things that was genius and it's delicious and of all the dishes that he's made that's the one that i think is like so fucking memorable 16 I'm going to put all three of these ramen shops in one. The, the, the memory is the same. It's ramen shop Aoba, Taishokin, and Roku Rinsha. Um, those are three ramen shops that changed my life. And I'm so out of the what, what is currently um, in vogue. What uh, are the top ramen shops that I'm, I have no doubt that if someone's listening, be like, that was so 15 years ago. Well, it was 15 years ago. That was so 22. That was so 19, uh, like 2001. Well, because it was 2001. So 1990, well, it was 1999 for me. And that's when I tasted it. And those are very memorable moments. I remember walking to Ioba from where I was living 
and get, seeing the double dip method for the first time. I remember waiting in line for over three hours for Taishoken and, 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 and seeing the chef there with the towels wrapped around their head. And I remember hearing about Rokurinsha and how they sort of changed the game with yuzu powder and it's breakfast, it's in a train station. All three of those I'm going to put at 16 because it was extremely memorable for me and I love it very much. Um, and and there, I'd probably put Jiro Ramen as well at 16. Um, 15 is the Long Kinhin, the I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, the, the restaurant, the Four Seasons in Hong Kong. They're known for their dim sum and it's awesome, um, but it's their fried chicken that is the most memorable. And uh, they, they, they air dry the chicken. And it's a technique that we used to do at Co for lunch. And um, um, Ryan Miller came up with this technique. And I think with another person with Sam Gelman, I can't recall, where we would baste the, these air dried ducks 150 times in oil. And it would get crispy and the texture was perfect. And the cook on it was perfectly medium, medium to medium rare. Uh, it was a total pain in the ass to do. And I learned that's exactly how they cook very similar their chicken, where you get this earth shattering crispy skin. But sometimes when you get skin that crispy, the, the chicken is not moist. And I've been told by people like Little Meg, there are other versions. And again, I think it's important to note. I'm sure Mount, that people were like, no, it's not good anymore. Someone's going to say, oh, that sucks now. Or there's two other places that do it better. I don't give a shit. This is what was memorable to me. And I, I still think about the excellence of that chicken. <clears throat> um, number 14, 1999. It is no longer there because Beijing destroyed all the hutongs, the, the, the small uh, huts where a lot of ethnic Chinese, especially the Muslim population, would live and, and, and uh, have small restaurants. I was there with some of my friends uh, after teaching English in Japan, and I was on my way home. Uh, and I stopped in Beijing for the first time and I had, um, I never had crawfish before I had collected crawfish in the Creek behind my house, but I've never eaten crawfish. It was the first time I ever had crawfish. And secondly, first time I ever had crawfish in boiling, sizzling mala oil that was spicy as hell in, um, a small hutong that had so much cigarette smoke that you couldn't see two feet away from you. And I say that was one of the most memorable meals I've ever had in my life. You're eating you're laughing, you're drinking beer. I knew nothing about gastronomy then. And it was so good. That to me, I've, I've tried to search for that memory in New Orleans, elsewhere, you know, they're there, they're similar, but that one, that one just, it's like a drug. It's like your first drug high. I'm never going to get it even remotely close to that. Cause that was legitimately one of my first real food memories and I remember later going with Mark Johnson in Shanghai at a later date, trying to eat that same kind of crawfish thing, but it was at a restaurant. And a few years later, there was so much pollution that you weren't able to eat the crawfish heads. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. There was something illegal about eating crawfish the way we did. 13, I don't remember the name. I should ask uh, Andrea Petrini. Uh, I, I will next time I'm in Milan. Um, I'll remember this because again, it was a reminder of like, oh shit, Dave, you don't know fucking anything. We're in a trattoria, a little bit in the suburbs of Milan, if I call. I don't remember really much of the dinner other than it was great. It was great company. Um, and we were there for a, a, a food conference. So I was there with a few other chefs. Um, 
And later we were going to celebrate Massimo Batura's birthday. So that's why a lot of us were there as well. And Modena. And I remember going to this place, this dinner. And honestly, this time, I don't remember anything because this memory is so vivid and so memorable. We're going peak white truffle season. So it's like December, January. And um, there there's been so much fucking white truffle, right? And that's another reason. All I can remember is a white truffle on every fucking course. And, and the owner, the chef, the matriarch comes out and she brings out a giant, what looks like a, a softball size white truffle. And she takes out a wheel of gorgonzola dolce, cuts a giant slice slab of it, like, like a fucking rectangular slab, puts it on a plate and destroys the white truffle, shaves it on top of it. And I remember asking her, like she saw my reaction and, and, and quickly it was more like the conversation skewed to, I can't believe you're, I didn't say wasting it, but that's how I felt. And she said, white truffles don't mean that much to me. <laughs> I'll never forget that. She's like, I growing up in Italy with the war, she's like potatoes were more valuable than a white truffle. And I, I'll never forget that. And I was like, Oh, so like, I don't know if there's, I've never had that combination ever before, but I remember thinking also that you have two very strong flavors that don't, why would they pair well together? But again, in America, you treat truffles with such reverence. You got to store it in rice and you can only do it with fucking foods that don't fucking overpower the flavor. It's got to be with uh, eggs or pasta or rice or whatever. It's got to be very subtle. You, ne- I've never had a white truffle dish that was the polar opposite. And that's what this was. You have basically blue cheese, extremely pungent, fierce blue cheese. And I was thinking to myself, how, that's, how is that going to pair well with this? I can't describe it. It is the most, one of the most ineffable feelings. It worked. And that's another time where I was like, well, chuck it up to, I don't know fucking shit. I know nothing. And this is a beautiful moment. And that was delicious. And I've never recreated that since. Number one, I don't roll with white truffles like that. Two, I'm not going to get white truffles that fucking fresh and pungent. So you could recreate that dish a thousand different ways. But unless it was like that strong, I don't know what's going to work. You, 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 it was extremely powerfully smelling uh, good, great, great white truffles. So like, I'm not going to try it again. And I'm okay not trying that again because it's like, I'm happier remembering that moment. Uh, 12 was Pascal Barbeau's button mushroom foie gras tart that's cured in verjus with hazelnut powder, lemon gel. Sometimes I think modern uh, uh, past few years, it was with yuzu and maybe yuzu gel. And, and again, um, I'll, I'll talk about that another day, but it's, it's, it's a combination of two ingredients that are not normally associated together. It's a, it's a, um, it's a signature dish. And I think it's one of the best dishes ever made, um, in how it's prepared and it's a la minute. It's made literally right before it goes out to a customer and you take a humble dish, but it's understanding ingredients, knowing that a button mushroom may not be loved, but it's extremely aromatic, especially when you slice it thin. It's got that, uh, it's like a Listerine, uh, tab, you know, it's got that type of ethereal nature to it and using that foie gras as a vehicle. Fat is a vehicle for flavor. It's why there's fat washing and booze, et cetera. 
Uh, it just is. Fat is a wonderful vehicle for flavor. Fat, the foie gras, which is almost always used as a way to highlight uh, as a, as a, as a, the central component of the dish, was really used as a backdrop to celebrate the button mushroom. It's a fucking intellectually genius dish, and, and that's why it's 12 for me. 11 is the yakiniku at Jumbo, uh, yakiniku Jumbo in Tokyo. Yakiniku is Korean barbecue. There's a lot of Koreans in Japan. Watch Pachinko. You'll have a better understanding of it. But I've tried to recreate this, and, and, and we've done ver- versions of this, and you might see versions of this from us, but it's never going to recreate exactly what they've done at Yakiniku Jumbo. He takes um, Zabuton slice, or maybe it's a, a rib cap slice. Anyway, it's, it's marinated in, in a kalbi, like a Korean marinade, and he's got a beautiful egg yolk. And that's placed in front of you, and they're cooking it right in front of you on the grill. But the way he cooks it, it's it's a little bit over the heat here or there. I, I'm again, I'm I, you can see me eating this on Ugly Delicious, um, the steak episode, and the way he folds it into uh, like a like a like a folded paper of four, right, is important because it's a little bit like a tortellini. If you eat a really good tortellini, you're getting different textures because. The top part of the tornellini, as Evan Funky said on our podcast a long time ago, a couple months ago, it's like 16 layers. It's, it's got texture. So you're eating this extremely beautiful cut of Wagyu that's been marinated. It melts in your mouth, but you, you don't expect different textures from this cut of meat in terms of how it's made for you. And then you're dipping it in the egg yolk, which is a beautiful thing because it adds luxury to an already luxury, luxurious dish. And that to me is what was memorable is how it is folded over. And then the texture, when you cut into it with your teeth and it melts, it's just simply sublime. 10 is the Shinsabe Maki at Sugita-san's uh, restaurant, uh, sushi restaurant in Tokyo. Um, I think it's got one mission star, but again, in, in Japan, no one gives a shit about the mission star system. And honestly, I don't think anybody should anymore, really, anyway. Um, I think it was the best piece of sushi I've ever had in my life. Um, Saba being mackerel that's been marinated, um, prepared in front of you, and then turned into maki rolled with, with, uh, with chives uh, and, and a little pieces of ginger. It was, I, I think about that a lot. In fact, it's favorited in my iPhone book photos because I look at that dish a lot because it's a reminder of what perfection can be. It is so good. That is white, white oily fish are my favorite in sushi, but that the way it was made and how he made it with his eyes closed, it was like he was fucking playing an instrument. It was as good as anything could possibly be. So that's why it's there. Nine. It's uh, one of my first meal at Noma, the langoustine with oyster emulsion, on a big old fucking rock. I never had a langoustine that big. Uh, the oyster emulsion with a little bit of tarragon, I believe, and sorrel. Just, again, eating with your hands and the buttery nature of how it's pan-roasted. That dish, you'll never see again at Noma, is easily one of my favorite dishes of all time because of the, the fun element, but also the delicious element. It was about breaking down barriers, that dish. Th- that dish, I feel like Jerry Salt's looking at a piece of art. It's just was meaningful in so many fucking ways. Uh, eight is caviar, uh, oysters and pearls at, at French Laundry or, or per se. Um, there's a great description of that dish in the French Laundry cookbook. I think it is a modern masterpiece. You're taking oysters trimmed 
with tapioca pearls and you're serving with oyster emulsion with caviar. That may not make any sense to anybody, but again, you're talking about textural contrast, temperature contrast. It's just a fucking perfect dish. It really is one of these perfect dishes. I would probably say one through 10, maybe on this list, 10 through one are the dishes I think about a lot <laughs> too, only recently. Seven, I think about a dish that I saw Josh Skeen's working on for many years and it's a culmination. It's like one of those dishes that if you work on it a lot, it's, it's a dish that you probably get sick of because you, you can't improve it. It is, you know, again, you're lucky if you get one of these in your career. It's that, uh, I'm sure if we asked Josh, he'd fucking, he hates it to death. It's the slow roasted beet that he serves with, um, well, I don't even know what he served it with, but I had it with just like literally just beet, um, and it's just slow roasted over embers over like 72 or four days. And, uh, you know, again, like I, I hate to say it, but like in a lot of ways, Skeens is a little bit like Passard. You're taking fucking techniques that if you give the recipe to, you're like, that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? That's all you have to fucking do, but you can't because you're not, you're not doing it. It's, it's a very special way to do it. It's a lot of care, passion, understanding to turn that beat. That's the fucking recipe. It's beets roasted over fucking fire, but it's not like any fucking beat you've ever had. So again, that's probably the best comp I can give to anybody that wants to know what eating at Arpeggio is like. Um, six is uh, another Tokyo restaurant. Actually, there's a bunch of Tokyo restaurants coming up. The Steak Sando at, at Shima. And again, I feel bad for helping popularize it because you have assholes coming into that restaurant, just asking for the steak sandwich. Don't do that. If you go to Shima, now that Tokyo is open again, order a fucking real menu, order the steaks, order everything else. Cause it's delicious. And the oven that he made built by himself. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite, favorite restaurants. The food is great. It's just a great steakhouse. Are there other more fabulous steakhouses in Japan? Yes, but it doesn't, they don't speak to me like Shima does. So don't go in there and order a steak sandwich and walk out, spend your money there and then earn the right to get a steak sandwich. Please do that. Uh, five. And, and I think the secret to that steak sandwich, by the way, it tastes like a big Mac. Just FYI. <laughs> I think it tastes like a big Mac um, because there's mustard in it. I won't go into too much because I've seen it made five, the marinara pie at Savoy, Azujuban. There's a few uh, places and I could have said Saren can, I could have said a few other places, but when I think about a pizza, the first pizza that comes to mind isn't Bianco Pizzeria. Again, it's like, isn't Uno Pizza Napolitana? Isn't anything in Naples? I think about the marinara pie in, in, in Azujuban. Again, best is a relative word here. I'm saying it's best because of what it meant when it happened and where it was. I never expected it, right? I never expected pizza to be great in Japan. We talk about an ugly, delicious pizza episode, but it is still something I think about because it's a reminder of you don't know shit and you have no idea what anything is, or what anything could be, right? That's the beauty of it all is like you come in with preconceived notions and a bias, you're gonna be knocked on your fucking ass. And that's why I think about it. Not that it's the best pie in the world. I love it. I crave it, but there's great pizza everywhere, but no pizza challenge my assumptions of food as much as this one. Four, the best chicken wing I've ever had is a Tona Izakaya. 
Uh, I believe it's a Michelin star restaurant. Very hard to get in a sick wine list. One of my favorite restaurants I've ever been to also extremely, extremely expensive, but they have a fried chicken wing and I still have yet to figure out what they coat the fucking chicken wing in the salt. It almost tastes like a, like a, like a, a milligram of cumin in it, but a wisp. I have no idea, but also these are chicken wings that are not like from the bulk. These are chicken wings that are taken from like chickens that they're using for the restaurant. So there's like not many of them. Um, a fried chicken wing. Again, I've had it. Even a bad fried chicken wing is good. But for me to remember every time I have a chicken wing, literally every time I have a chicken wing, whether it's yakitori, tebasaki or not, I always think about the first chicken wing I had there. It's that memorable. It's that good. Three, uh, first time I had dadong in, 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 in uh, Beijing, I had the Peking duck. Um, there's a bunch of places. There's CG Mifu. There's, uh, I'm going to butcher all the names. There's like literally like six places in Beijing, probably more that are very, very good. And I think there's, a, I think there's like three dadongs, at least two dadongs in Beijing proper. And um, it's so good. It's so good. That's all I can say, man. If you haven't been, I know there's a dadong in New York. It just didn't really um, have the same ability to deliver. Um, this, this duck is really good. All the duck at all the places that are supposed to be good in Beijing are really fucking good. Uh, they're, they're, the ambiance might be there. They may have a different duck course with a carcass. They might bake a soup. They make make something else. Um, but a lot of it is the service and the ambiance, but, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with Dadong Two, We have WD 50 twice. It's another dish. I think about quite a bit. It's the chicken ball with mole paper, um, with, with egg yolk, uh, like an egg yolk carpaccio. It was the first time I ever saw a chicken shaped into a ball, like a big, big baseball. It was like a boned out baby chicken. And it was the first time I ever seen transglutamates used while it was the first person to really popularize Miklu. And it was a dish I would eat a lot. I ate at WD 50 at the bar many, many times, oftentimes by myself. And then later to be, you know, Wiley would come and we chat and I miss that guy to death. But that dish I love tremendously. The mole paper, it was just a beautiful dish. Um, and I loved it. It was my favorite dish at WD 50. And I was really sad when he took it off the menu, but that's what Wiley would do to me. He'd take my favorite dishes off the menu and challenge me to eat something else. So I'm always grateful for that. Number one, my favorite dish of all time. And I'd say regardless of order, this is the dish I think about all the fucking time legitimately is Exo Pippies at Golden Century that is now closed. And um, it's a sad, sad reality. What happened to the Chinatown in Sydney uh, and the development there, and especially during the pandemic and to the whole Kwong family. Like, uh, I don't know what's happening. I don't even know what restaurants are. I think it might be open. I don't know anything. All I know is... Golden Century closed, um, original location. Maybe I heard rumors that's coming back up. I don't know, but I will tell you, I love you guys. I love everything that you guys did for the industry, for tourists. It's a restaurant that I had to earn the right to have a good meal. I have eaten more meals at that restaurant than I think any restaurant in my life. That's how much time I've spent in Australia, FYI, but that dish is perfection. It's, it's, uh, their XO sauce. It's pippies, which are uh, indigenous clam to Australia. It's like a triangular shaped, but very sweet and got a nice texture to them. 
And then they have their noodles that they pan fry and it turns into like this crispy coating. It's like a crisp shell, but it's still gelatinous and chewy on the inside. Um, and that's the base. You have to ask for the noodles and then it's covered in the exo sauce and the pippies. It's a simple dish. But again, it has this element of texture. It has this element of interaction with the pippies. It also has that element of eating with other people, community. It's like it has all the elements of my favorite kinds of eating, eating with your hands, eating with your friends. And then when it's all said and done, you have the best part of the dish. It isn't even the pippies and the exo sauce. It's the crispy noodles that have been soaking up all the juices. And you eat that like pizza. At least I did, like a, like a fucking crazy person. And I cannot think of a dish that is better than that. It is as good as anything. And I do think it's the best dish in the world. I really do. And I miss that. I think about that all the fucking time. So that is my 50-ish best, most favorite food dishes of all time. I have no doubt that I've missed another 150. And if I think about it some more, if I sit down for another 20, 25 minutes, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get to you uh, on that. And maybe we'll do this um, at length. But that's what I want. I want people to think about food. I want people to talk about food. I want people to have memories that no one else has had because that's what makes food so great. That's what makes restaurants so great. That what, that's the time and place at a certain restaurant that only you might have and no one else is going to have. No one else should have these shared experiences. These are my experiences. They're open for debate. They're open for, I disagree with you. That's what we need. What we don't need is these are the best full stop. So there you go. Give us uh, five stars, however you rate this podcast. Well, that was a lot longer than I expected. I thought I was only going to do like 25. Uh, that was 50-something dishes that I, I care about, remember, think are great. Uh, I know that it was 50, but it's really no, no, no order or um, ranking. It's like just whatever was coming to my memory. And there are many that were higher than others, or even if I care to do that kind of ranking, but it was just more about me writing 50 dishes that I remembered. Um, and I literally just try to write it out as fast as possible without thinking about it in about 20, 25 minutes. And what I realized in that rush and even talking about it was I just, I just remembered, I was like, something's not right. I believe without even listening to anything, I said, the lima bean dish was from Dookie Chase, the late great Leah Chase's restaurant, and it's not. It was from Willie Mae Scotch House. And I'm sure I got a lot of other facts wrong, dishes wrong, but that's just what came to my memory. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll I'll try to write down something more comprehensive because I'm sure the list could go way deeper. But you know, it is. That's what happened. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I didn't anticipate it making a whole podcast based on that, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. But that's just how I remember things. And I remember food uh, is more about what was happening at that point and why it was significant to me at that moment. And just thinking about it right now, I, there's so many restaurants that I, I, I've forgotten to mention or, or had really terrific meals. Um, and I got to sit down and think about it some more. So um, if you guys like this, maybe we'll give it another another shot at it. But um, yeah, stay tuned. Have a good weekend, everybody. Be safe.